The inerrancy of Scripture. I was very pleased to be asked to speak about this, and particularly in the context this evening of the practical aspects of Christianity. Because the inerrancy of Scripture is an intensely practical doctrine. But for all that, it's one that's often challenged and one that's often subject to misunderstanding. So what I want to do with you this evening is to consider some aspects of the scriptural basis on which the doctrine's founded and then to see, to look at some of the contemporary challenges to it and to see how these are formulated and how we can begin to formulate a response to them. But before we begin to consider what the doctrine is concerned with and the foundation on which it rests, perhaps it's as well to make clear one or two things about how the inerrancy of Scripture operates. There's one thing it does not allow us to do. The fact that Scripture is inerrant doesn't allow us to formulate an all-inclusive, errorless, systematic theology. Having utterly true and reliable scriptures doesn't do away with the need to interpret those scriptures. And even though we have the sure foundation, in the matter of interpretation, men, even good men, may and do differ. The church here below is never going to be able to issue a definitive, all-comprehensive theology. Even though it has an errorless source in Scripture. Because although the Scriptures are there, they require interpretation. And the task that the Lord has set his church on earth is, first of all, how to interpret Scripture, and then how to work out the interpretation in the life of the church, in the life of the community. It's only in glory that the church will be perfect in knowledge and understanding, as well as in holiness. And it's only then that we will come to a complete, fully orbed view of all that has been taught us. But that doesn't mean that the inerrant scriptures are of little value to the Christian now. Far from it. What an inerrant Bible does is to present us with an objective authority outside of ourselves. An inerrant scripture presents us with the standard, the final standard, by which we have to judge ourselves. And that's what all the controversy about Scripture, the nature of Scripture, the qualities of Scripture, that's what it's all about. It is the question of authority and the practice of submission to that authority. The temptation facing the church In each and every generation, it may express itself in slightly different ways, but the basic temptation is the same. 
It is to massage the scriptures into a form that we're more comfortable with. The temptation is to play down certain aspects of scripture that don't gain such a ready hearing in contemporary culture. And perhaps to emphasize other aspects of scripture that we feel more comfortable with. But no matter what we, the temptation is to modify or deviate, Scripture itself still stands. Scripture stands over against the world and over against the church as an authority, a standard, the measure of mankind. It's not, the text is fixed. It's not subject to the whims of human society. It's not something that's altered because of the culture of the day. It stands over against humanity. It stands over against the church. It's the touchstone by which all may be judged. It's the touchstone by which all will be judged in the great day. Because in it there are the words of condemnation that speak out against all error. There are the words of forgiveness that provide a welcome to the repentant. There are the words of guidance that we require to teach us how to conduct ourselves in this world. In 1978, a a group that had met in Chicago in the States issued a statement on biblical inerrancy. And they gave a brief summary of what they said in five paragraphs, two of them, are very relevant to what I'm just saying. It says, Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men prepared and superintended by his Spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. And then the next article says, The Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by his inward witness and opens our minds to understand its meaning. When the Holy Spirit takes the words of Scripture and makes them real to our hearts and consciences, we know that we are hearing the living word of the living God. And the hearing of faith impels us to trust and obedience. It's that call for obedience that constitutes the ongoing challenge to mankind. It's the requirement to recognize God's authority. And that mustn't be evaded. And as we come to Scripture, we are to see it and to view it in the fullness of its purpose. And I think that threefold um, description that they gave, it's a description that's found in various forms by many writers is one that we've always got to use as a checklist for our own attitude towards Scripture. To be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms. 
to be obeyed as God's command in all that it requires and to be embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. There is what the Spirit brings to us in the Word of God. Now the challenge that is issued is one that comes at many levels and in many ways. Because this is fundamental to the Christian faith. And the forces of evil have been probing and pushing and questioning and trying to undermine, trying to sow doubt and succeeding in sowing doubt regarding the authority the inerrancy of God's word. And they come with all sorts of objections. One will come and say, how do you know that you have anything called scripture at all? Aren't you making a lot of assumptions? What you've got is a collection of various ancient writings. How do you manage to bring them all together? You've no right How do you justify bringing them all together, saying, they are one? I can talk of scripture. There are others who come and say, well, okay, you've got this collection. Are you sure you've got the right books in it? Here's this collection. Are you sure they are all scripture? The question of canon. And there are others who come and say, how can you talk about an an inerrant scripture? How do you know you've got the right text, even though you've got the right books? And there's the question of textual criticism. And against all these questions, the church has to answer. We haven't chosen these books because we happen to like them. We haven't chosen this text because it sort of fits in with the theology we were espousing anyhow. We haven't chosen this particular textual reading because it supports our particular theological stance. Scripture stands outside our thinking. Scripture stands outside our pious meditation. It is there as the standard against which we shape our thoughts and our thinking. The question of text is a smokescreen. Radicals and liberals, evangelicals and conservatives all use what is for practical purposes the same text. There's no single doctrine in dispute between radical and evangelical that turns on the question of what the right text is. Even the question of canon, though it raises many interesting matters, is one that's largely settled. Canon and text are are vital areas, important areas of study. I'm not trying to decry them. But the question as regards the doctrine of Scripture, the basic question is one of fundamental religious posture. Are we prepared to accept that there is an infallible standard of the written word of God that's outside of us, calling us to obedience, requiring us to shape up to it? Or are we seeking to be over the word? Are we seeking to try it, to test it, to exercise our judgment as to what bits of it are acceptable 
This is the age-old temptation before mankind. Ye shall be as gods. They had God's word in the garden. And the temptation was to claim autonomy. The right to decide about what God's word should be. And that is the, the basic rebellious attitude that's in, been in mankind ever since. There is God's word. God's word that stands fixed, that stands over against us. And we're constantly seeking to evade the searching scrutiny, the total claims that it makes on us. Wayne Grudem, in his fairly recent and excellent systematic theology, defines biblical inerrancy in this way. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. The, scriptures, the Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Or to put it even more simply, the Bible tells the truth. And it tells the truth concerning everything about which it talks. Now there is slipped into that definition, this phrase, in the original manuscripts. And some people think, oh, that's trying to get away from something. It's not really. The original manuscripts, they're often referred to as the, the autographs, the original writings. They are the writings that the doctrine of inerrancy focuses on. We have no scriptural warrant for assuming that these, these writings, these manuscripts were copied or transmitted over time uh, perfectly. We know that many a printer's error crept in. Many a printer's error um, managed to miss out important words in Scripture. The earlier manuscript copy, uh, scribes misheard words as they were writing the Scriptures out to dictation. They, they miscopied many things. But as they came from God, we know that the words are true. And we know that God has so preserved his word that its message is conveyed to us that it is still the word of God preserved by his care, but preserved in terms of the ordinary flow of history. Now, until the end of the 19th century, inerrancy wasn't a word that was used very much in Christian circles. If you look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, you find the word doesn't really surface in the English language until about 1830. And the reason for that is that everyone just assumed that saying scripture was inspired meant scripture was without error. If someone, uh, the doctrines of inerrancy and inspiration uh, were taken as equivalent. God had inspired scripture. And as God could not lie, 
all that he had caused to be written down uh, for the instruction of the church through the ages was therefore inevitably true. The problem over the years has been that the word inspire and inspired has been weakened in its meaning. It's a long time it's been the case that poets claimed inspiration. People who wrote songs claim they were inspired. But nowadays it's got to the length where even sports commentators are not averse to talking about the inspired performance of athletes. The word has moved on over the years. Its meaning's been stretched and the word itself has been debased. We need another term to set out what we're talking about. And fortunately, in one of the two scripture passages uh, that we're going to look at in a little more detail in just a moment, that other word is supplied for us, the word God breathed. Now notice what we're doing. We're going to turn to scripture so that we can work out what we are to think about scripture. And this is often challenged as being circular reasoning. But when it comes to fundamental beliefs, as far as I can see, there's always an element of circularity. If you're dealing with someone who says, I'm not going to believe anything that is not obvious to my reason. And you ask him, how do you justify that belief? He says, oh, it's because it seems reasonable. And he's using his own reason to justify his stance. And it seems to me that to build up anything from basic fundamental building blocks, you have to make some assumption. You may later find that your assumptions are unsatisfactory. You may later revise them because you can see as you work through their implications that they're internally inconsistent. Or it may be that they come into conflict with some major phenomenon. But there's always an element of circularity in what we initially accept to base our opinions on. And that's true in thinking about Scripture. The only way we can think truly about Scripture is to listen to what Scripture itself says. Professor John Murray, who taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, wrote in 1946, If the Bible does not witness to its own infallibility, then we've no right to believe that it's infallible. If it does bear witness to its infallibility, then our faith in it must rest upon that witness, however much difficulty may be entertained with this belief. If this position with respect to the ground of faith in Scripture is abandoned, then appeal to the Bible for the ground of faith in any other doctrine must also be abandoned. The doctrine of Scripture must be derived from Scripture, just as any other doctrine should be. If the doctrine of Scripture is denied its right of appeal to Scripture for support, then what right does any other doctrine have to make this appeal? Let's get our first steps right, because they're going to determine the outcome of our thinking. How should we think about Scripture We must think of Scripture in terms of what Scripture itself testifies. Now, since Professor Murray wrote back in 1946, the doctrine of Scripture has been at the focus of much theological writing. 
Some things have become clear. Some old questions have been formulated in new ways. And some new questions have been asked. But the basic requirement is still the same. And it's the same not only in the doctrine of Scripture, it's the same in every Christian doctrine. Our thinking has to be derived from and based on the testimony of Scripture itself. So as we look at Scripture, what we're trying to do is to find out what Scripture claims to be true of itself. Now, of course, there's a step, it's a big step, between working out what Scripture claims to be true and accepting Scripture's claim. There are many who can work out what Scripture is saying, but will not accept the claim. And ultimately, our conviction that the words of the Bible are God's word, that comes when the Holy Spirit speaks to us in and through the words of Scripture. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, Paul said to the Corinthians. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It is one thing to look at the Bible and to work out what the Bible is claiming for itself. But that spiritual discernment that allows one to acknowledge those claims as true is only the portion of those who know the Spirit's work. My sheep, said Jesus, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. They listen to my voice. And it is the mark of those who know, who have been transformed by God's Spirit, that they can hear Christ's voice speaking to them through the Scriptures. Let's then look at the two key passages in Scripture. They are the two passages that were read to us earlier. And the first of these is 2 Timothy chapter 3, and particularly verses 16 and 17. I'm reading here the the NIV. Uh, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the AV, it was all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, there are many aspects of verse 16 that have been argued over intensively there's this phrase all scripture and both these words have attracted attention if you look at some modern translations i just checked it out in the nrsv they have a footnote that suggests every scripture inspired by god is also useful for teaching that's the translation they go for So the first question is, should it be all scripture or every scripture? Is it a reference to the whole of scripture or to particular passages in it? There used to be a Greek class met down here. Does it still meet? I think not. Ah, has it stopped? 
Well, if there's anybody can remember any Greek, I can give you some more details about the Greek aspects of it. I think I'll miss them out just now. I don't think it matters too much whether it's all or every. Because if every scripture is God-breathed, and that's true of each one, then it's true of them all as well. That's not where the problem really lies. Nor does the problem really arise over the word scripture. The word scripture is just simply the word for writing. And some people say, well, it could refer to any writing. But that doesn't work in this context. Paul's particularly saying to Timothy, look, from your youngest years, you've known the Holy Scriptures. Uh, Timothy, who was brought up uh, with a knowledge of the truth, of the Old Testament truth, the writings are undoubtedly uh, the Old Testament. That's what's being referred to here. The major difference is how you deal with this word the NIVs rendered God-breathed, that the AV rendered uh, given by inspiration. And there are those who want to translate it as every scripture inspired by God is also. What are they trying to do? They're trying to open up the picture there may be some scriptures that are not inspired by God. They're trying to tease out of the text a perception that there should be a discrimination between one text and another. And that's why they go for this translation, every scripture that is breathed out by God is also useful. As a matter of translation... As a matter of grammar, that really ought not to have even appeared in the footnotes of the NRSV and other similar translations. It is not grammatically feasible. The teaching is very clearly that this is something that applies either to every scripture individually or to all scripture as a body, that they are both God-breathed and useful for teaching. What I want to focus on instead is this word, God-breathed. I don't know if you've ever heard of B.B. Warfield. He was one of the greatest American theologians and a very stout defender of Scripture. He wrote many uh, articles on it. And I think it would be rather be fair, but a bit paradoxical to say that B.B. Warfield didn't believe in the inspiration of Scripture. He didn't think that was the right word to apply. Because inspiration has the idea, and many people have taken it up, that there's first of all the writings written by men And then God comes along and adds some quality to these writings to make them special. And Warfield said, and proved conclusively after pages of analysis of Greek examples, that is not what this word means. And that's why the NIV has gone to the far superior translation, God breathed. The word has got two components in it, God breathed 
and to breathe. And the idea is not God breathing into something that's already there. It's not the idea either of something that's already there breathing out a message about God. It's rather the idea that scripture itself is breathed out by God. The claim is the divine origin of scripture. That is what God breathed as a word presents. It is the picture of God himself causing the word to come, the scriptures to come into existence in the way in which he wants them to exist. Inspiration is claimed in all sorts of debased ways nowadays. It's not a word that's really conveying the strength of the phrase that Paul uses here. He is claiming that scripture comes from God. I've met people who've been puzzled when you say all scripture is inspired by God. Their puzzle is just at the level of words, but they, they say, I find lots of the Bible isn't inspiring. When I go through these genealogies and chronicles or details of this, that, and the other, and they take the word inspired, inspiring in, in the modern sense of, of something that um, gives you an uplift, uh, something that seems to be um, promoting uh, some, a positive view or promoting um, good feelings within one. That is perhaps not totally untrue of Scripture. But that's not what the claim is. The claim is that though the words of Scripture came into existence in a variety of ways, humanly speaking, each and every Scripture, each and every passage, came into existence under the control of God, brought forth by God to present the message that God wanted conveyed. And I think it's also useful to correct another elementary mistake, to notice that it's scripture that's God-breathed. You see, what's happened is the word now, we talk of inspired poets, we talk of inspired people. We sometimes think of, we sometimes use the language of saying the biblical author is inspired. But the claim in scripture, is that it is scripture that is God-breathed. So that the elementary mistake of those who say, well, you can't argue for an inerrant Bible, because there are those who were involved in writing the text of scripture that did make, they did make errors of judgment. They were fallible men. And they will point, say, to the instance where uh, Paul had to stand up to Peter because he was in the wrong uh, when he came to Galatia. And other instances... That doesn't affect the doctrine of Scripture. Because there is no claim that the writers of Scripture were inspired in that sense all their lives. The claim is that when they wrote Scripture, the Scriptures themselves were God-breathed. The focus is on the written word. The focus is on the message God has presented in the written word. 
And we can also notice in this passage the purpose. You see, there are some people who make tremendous efforts and do stand genuinely on the conviction that the Bible is the word of God. And they'll be very happy with all scripture is God breathed. And they stop there. But there are two things said about scripture. Not only does it have its origin in God. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And both these things must be present. That's the challenge. That's why I think we've got it here at the first of these five lectures. Yes, we must be sure this is God-breathed. And that's great to have that conviction. But if it doesn't flow through into the practical consequence of being thoroughly equipped for every good work, indeed one say thoroughly working every good work, then we haven't lived through the scriptural doctrine of scripture. So here when Paul is speaking, he is emphasizing that when God caused the Bible to be written, it came in words. It came in words, you can use the phrase, they were equally inspired, they were equally God-breathed. There's no distinction here that there's some part of scripture that's got something more than another in terms of its divine origin, the word is inscripturated and the whole Bible is presented to us in exactly the same way. And it's presented to us so that we can accept its divine origin and use it to teach our, to be, so that we can be taught how to live in a way that honours and pleases God. And similarly when we turn to Second Peter in chapter 1. Especially there verses 20 and 21. Above all you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter began by saying to those to whom he was writing, I'm wanting to make every effort that after my death, and I'm expecting to be removed from this earthly scene very soon, you'll be able to remember all that I've told you. And I want you to realize, he says, first of all, we didn't follow cleverly invented stories. The word, in fact, that he uses is the word myths. We didn't follow myths. And myths in Peter's day had exactly the same overtones it has nowadays. A story, whatever its significance for you, a story with no factual basis. We didn't think up these things. We were eyewitnesses. We were there. And then Peter does something that runs quite counter to modern thinking. 
He says to these people, we were there, we can give you eyewitness testimony, and yet there's something more important. There is something more certain. There is the word of the prophets. I want you to think above eyewitness testimony to what is written in Scripture. See, we're apt to move in the other direction. We tell people what's written in Scripture. And then when they're still hesitating, then when they're still wondering, they say, Ah, well, I'll now tell you my personal experience about this. I'll now tell you what this means to me. And there was Peter. Peter who'd been on the Holy Mount. Peter who had heard God speaking, God's testimony. And Peter moves the other way. He says, yes, these things were true. But you know, we have something even more important. We have scripture. We have the prophecy of scripture. And probably when Peter was talking about the prophecy of scripture, he was talking about the whole of the Old Testament. Because after all, well, we know that to Jewish thought, uh, the Old Testament was all written by prophets. Moses wrote the first five books, and Moses was the, the greatest prophet. The Jews called the history books the, the former prophets. They viewed them as having prophetic origin. Even David, was, uh, as the psalmist, was viewed as a prophet. So when Peter is talking here about prophecy of Scripture, uh, it's not just Isaiah, Jeremiah he's thinking of. It's really the whole of the Old Testament. And he's saying, here you have the ultimate revelation. Here you have the ultimate in terms of knowing about God. And he's saying, pay careful attention. It wasn't human impulse that gave rise to these scriptures. It was the Holy Spirit. It's not Peter's intention to deny human volition. It's not his intention to deny the place of human personality in the writing of Scripture. He says quite clearly, men spoke. There was real human involvement. But it was divinely controlled. In terms of what Peter says later... In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, when he's talking about Paul, he says, Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures. There's Peter, himself an apostle, talking about Paul and Paul's writings and putting them on a par with the other scriptures. So that what Peter is saying here in chapter 1, although its focus in the first instance is on the Old Testament, in terms of what Peter says later, can apply to the New Testament also. And he's saying these things are spoken from God. They have a divine trustworthiness. And yet Peter, like Paul and Timothy, who himself was used by God in this way, doesn't give us any final explanation regarding the process of inspiration. Scripture writers used many different ways to write their books. 
Some of them used almost academic research. Luke tells us he made diligent inquiry. I'm sure David, in writing the Psalms, had many a hard moment as he tried to get his thought expressed in the best poetic form that was available to him. But all was done under the general providential superintendence of God. B.B. Warfield, if I can quote him, said, If God wished to give his people a series of letters like Paul's, he prepared a Paul to write them. And the Paul he brought to the task was a Paul who would write just the sort of letters that God wanted. God's provision of scripture involved his general providential superintendence of the life and circumstances of the scriptural writers. And there was also his immediate empowerment through the divine spirit, working specifically in and through them as they produced the scriptures. They were actually, but mysteriously, taught the words they use. Now, the clearest, the furthest scripture gets to trying to explain that is the phrase there in 2 Peter 1.21. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the word there has got a picture. It's the word that would have been used in in the ancient world by Greeks, for the way a sailing ship would be carried along by the wind. This is the word that would be used for a ship with the wind in its sails. Its direction of travel, its speed of travel, the way it makes its journey is the empowerment of the wind. And those who spoke from God were those who were empowered and carried along and made their way forward as they wrote because they were borne along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot we could ask and we're not told. But the fact is clearly stated. And remember, this isn't speculation. This is Peter who himself had experienced this. This is the most that Peter could tell of what he knew happening as he wrote what are these portions of Scripture. Now, with that as background, did I say an hour? (laughs) I'm just getting warmed up. If I was a real preacher, I would say finally at this point, and you would know you were in for a long session yet. Now we've got to consider all these challenges. Can I put them into three groups? This is broad brushstroke. There's what might be called the liberal view of Scripture. It's just a human document. How can you talk of anything human as being without error. They view the... They they really deny the reality of revelation. And 
old-fashioned liberal thinking has got a new lease of life in recent years through the infiltration of Eastern ideas. Eastern ideas that view God as unknowable, that emphasize the transcendence of God. They, they really claim that it's beyond our ability to speak accurately of God at all. There's no possibility of meaningful communication. They say there's no possibility of scripture, really, let alone in, in, inerrant scripture. That sort of thinking we can dismiss on the basis of Scripture. Oh yes, we're not denying God is transcendent. We're not denying the greatness and the majesty and the exaltation of God. But we are affirming the reality of creation. We're affirming the reality that God has made us, has made us in his image, has made us to communicate with us. And because God has done that, because that is the structure of the world we're in, there is not only the possibility of real communication, of real understanding about God, there is the reality of it. Scripture, the word of God, bears testimony to the fact that God has made us intelligent, rational beings with whom he can speak. And in the mirror image, we are those who have the capacity to communicate and speak with God. So the view that you can't really have scripture at all, you've just got a human document, a document about human religious feelings, human religious ideas, has to push to one side the reality of God the creator who made us in his image so that he could speak to us. So that he could communicate and interact with us. I leave that on one side. But there are perhaps two other distortions of scripture that you may find you have to grapple with. It will no doubt vary from place to place. But can I call the one the, the neo-orthodox view and the other, the, the neo-evangelical view. Or do you prefer a name? Well, if neo-orthodox, I'm talking about the Bartian view. What does it say? It basically likens scripture to a well-presented sermon. It says, yes, there may very well have been revelation from God... But scripture is not that revelation. Scripture instead is witness to that revelation. God's revelation, it says, is not really before us in any meaningful, divinely revealed way when we look at the Bible. What instead we have is the testimony of human witnesses, very human witnesses, who are just fallible beings like ourselves, who get it wrong at times, who make mistakes at times. So it's not really perhaps like a very well-preached sermon, it's like a very badly-preached sermon. But, they'll say, even through a badly-preached sermon, someone may still be saved. <laughs> 
even though there may be mistakes in a sermon, because the preacher is still witnessing to the truth, there's sufficient of the way of salvation gets through to make it possible for the hearer to understand and believe. So this view says there are mistakes in Scripture. There are errors in Scripture. They're not there because God has erred. They're there because what we have in Scripture is fallible human witness to God's revelation. And that set up a battle, a tension in evangelicalism. On the one side, there are those whom I would call conservative, who, with whom I would ally myself, so it's conservative with a small c. Yes, okay. <laughs> Scripture is the word of God. In the sense that the human words of Scripture are God-breathed as a divine product. They're true, they're trustworthy, they're authoritative. And there is this neo-orthodox view that Scripture is really the word of man, just like any other human document. But because it is proclaimed by the apostles and it is confessed by the church, God uses that word as a witness to Christ and in that way, Salvation is possible. Now, let me come at it in a slightly different way. Both these points of view are saying there is mystery. But the conservative is saying the mystery is the way in which God produces an infallible book through the mediation, through the instrumentality of fallible writers. There is mystery because God hasn't seen fit to explain to us how the word comes from God through the writer to the written word apart from this analogy of being borne along by the spirit whereas the neo-orthodox say the mystery is the fact that God uses a fallible human book to convey a divine message and what's happened well, what's happened is that the church is no longer able to give authoritative direction. The church that thought it had a Bible that was a divine gift that enabled them to address all men at all times, in all places, in all circumstances, in all areas of their lives and say, this is what God wants you to do, is no longer there. We merely have a human document where every word is liable to all the limitations of humans. It can't provide an adequate basis for proclamation. It's something that is inherently flawed. But above all, the problem is this, that that view of Scripture makes man the measure. It's the human mind that is the criterion of truth. So that somebody like Karl Barth will say, Adam has no existence in the plane of history. On what basis does he say that? He says that because he judges Scripture's evidence as insufficient. The problem is the age-old problem. Who is the judge? Is it God speaking in Scripture or is it human reason? Possibly in rebellion against God.
If all we have in scripture is a human document, we are being invited to judge that document in terms of its truthfulness and in terms of what it says. And that is fundamentally flawed in its thinking, as well as being quite at variance with the testimony that scripture gives of itself. It is God-breathed. It is breathed out by God. It is divine through human instrumentality. And because of that, it provides an authoritative and trustworthy guide for belief and action. There's also, and perhaps this is one that you might meet more often, the neo-evangelical view. How can one explain this? Well, let's begin with some words. There are those who will say, Scripture is infallible, but it's not inerrant. Now, up until about 1960, that distinction just wouldn't have been understood. Up until the early 60s, infallible and inerrant meant the same thing. But those who argue for an infallible scripture are nowadays generally wanting to have scripture authoritative in the areas of faith and conduct, matters of religious belief and ethics. But they say, oh, when it comes to scientific details or history, the writers just reflected the general beliefs of their day. This is the neo-evangelical view. These are men who will be preaching the doctrines of grace, who accept uh, much of scripture testimony uh, regarding uh, doctrines of Christianity, but they will limit the truthfulness of scripture to the areas of faith and practice. They will say this is a better explanation of what we find in Scripture. They, they will say how God is God. I'm trying to summarize here. Let's put it this way. How can God use human beings and produce a perfect product? We look at ourselves and we know we're flawed. They say, yes, the conservative approach to Scripture emphasizes its divine origin. But it fails, they say, to do justice to its human mediation. God was pleased to use people to write Scripture. And because of that there will inevitably be time-conditioned elements in Scripture. The, those who wrote Scripture weren't going to spend a long time combating the ordinary beliefs of their day about when things happened in history or about how various basic scientific phenomena worked. They had a more important message to present 
that message they presented and other things just fell in to the ordinary pattern of their day. They argued scripture presents the message of God in faith and practice, but not in science or history. Back in the days of B.B. Warfield, this way of thinking was presented in some terms such as these. As light that passes through the coloured glass of a cathedral window is light from heaven, but it is stained by the tints of the glass through which it passes. So, the neo-evangelical view argues, any word of God which is passed through the mind and soul of a man must come out discoloured by the personality through which it's given, and to just that degree ceases to be the pure word of God. And Warfield said, let's take that illustration of the stained glass cathedral window and let's ask the question, suppose the architect had designed the window just so that the glass would give the light the colour it gives it. If the personality that is being used to write scripture has been formed by God into precisely the personality it is so that the word is given that very colour, doesn't that change the situation? What if the colours of the stained glass window have been designed by the architect for the express purpose of giving the light that floods the cathedral precisely the quality it receives? You've got to take the doctrine of scriptural inerrancy hand in hand with the sovereignty of God. You've got to take the realization that God didn't look round at an odd moment and say, who can I get to write this scripture? He said, as he said to Jeremiah, I knew you in the womb. Before you were born, I'd chosen you. And it was the same with all those whom he used to write scripture. They were not people whom he had perforce to use who would distort the message. They were those whom he had specially, providentially made into the very people that they were so that the message could be presented precisely as he wanted it. And to say that there is in scripture some area that doesn't come under the rubric of being trustworthy (coughs) raises all sorts of problems. It raises the problem of the self-testimony of Scripture. We saw all Scripture is profitable. But the neo-evangelical wants to say all Scripture is profitable except those bits that talk about history or science. We're told in Scripture it's completely pure, Psalm 12. It is perfect, Psalm 119. It is true in many places. And there is no hint in the self-testimony of Scripture that there is a type of subject, that there is a category of subject on which the Bible does not speak truthfully. Just take one instance. Romans 15.4 says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. 
so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And as you read through the New Testament, you find instance after instance where the writers cite and affirm as true all sorts of details from Old Testament history, from Jonah and the whale to Abraham and Melchizedek, from Elijah being sent to the widow of Zarephath to Balaam's donkey speaking. There is no suggestion that there's some areas that have to be put off in a certain zone, not covered by inerrancy, not covered by divine trustworthiness. And again, there's the other basic problem. The problem that this approach invites us to stand over Scripture and to decide between Scripture and Scripture. Time and again, we're warned not to add to what is commanded, not to subtract from it. You find that in Deuteronomy 4.2, in Revelation 22.18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. So that there is the self-testimony of scripture. There is the problem that we're again being invited to stand in judgment on Scripture. And there is also the problem of God's character. If we want Scripture to be something less than totally inerrant, and yet we want to say at the same time the words of Scripture are God-breathed, we've got to say that God has accommodated himself to us. And when people talk about accommodation in this sense, what they mean really is that God has said something that is false. And if God has spoken condescendingly and falsely in certain areas, the question arises, might he not have done so in other areas that we haven't yet identified? It's the same situation we're being brought to sit in judgment on God's word. And if we are called on as Christians to be imitators of God's moral character, and if God did in condescension cause to be recorded what is false, then how can we be imitating God if we're putting away falsehood and speaking the truth? Is it the case that white lies are acceptable? Oh yes, there is accommodation. But it's not at the compromise of truth. One can speak the gospel message simply to children without being untruthful in that communication. And there's no doubt that when God speaks to us of divine things, he comes down, he condescends to our level so that we can understand them. But that doesn't make them untrue. It doesn't mean we've got to say, oh, it's history, that there'll be error there. The God who breathed out the word, breathed it out in each and every aspect Because he is the unlying God, the God who is never false, the God who is never acting contrary to his character. He has given to his church this possession, this word of testimony that gives us light in the darkness. 
That was what Peter was worried about. That was what Peter was worried about as he was speaking to the people of his day and saying to them, I'm worried what's going to happen with you once I've gone. And so I'm writing you this letter. I'm writing you this letter so that you can be better informed. We live in a world of darkness. And it's only as we have the authority of Scripture that we have any message to give to the world. That's what's gone wrong with the church this century. The strands of biblical criticism, the corrosive influence within the church has destroyed the church's confidence in Scripture, has meant that the church is not listening to Scripture in the way in which it ought to be. The church has not collapsed because of the onslaughts of out there. It has collapsed because there's been a fundamental collapse in our grasp of the truth, the purity of God's word. And it's only when we have that word as a sure light for our feet that we know not only what to believe, but how to act in this world of sin. Scripture did not come into being because of human thinking through about things to do with religion. It came into being because God spoke, because the Holy Spirit carried along the prophets of old and the apostles of the New Testament. And in the word that we have, we have the test, the record of what God wishes his church to have now in matters of belief, in matters of practice, and the knowledge he conveys in everything else that scripture affirms. Can I just go back to that statement? The word of God is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Mackay, for that. We've got a short period of time um, to allow you, if you want to, not necessarily to ask questions, uh, but simply to ask if there are any points of illumination, anything perhaps which Professor Mackay has said you're clear about, or indeed anything you'd hoped he would say and hasn't. So, that's a wide field, of course. And... Uh, can I invite someone to be brave and uh, ask a comment? George, are you wanting to say something or just take a photograph? That's all right. Okay. There's a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> Isn't that true? Interpretation, which I think you suggested we were encouraged to do, and the danger between interpreting and then making a judgment over Scripture. 
if I heard you right, can you help us understand where we should be looking to interpret Scripture and where we should be avoiding an interpretation becoming judgment? Did everyone hear that? Well, yes. I, I'll repeat for them as much as I want to answer. <laughs> Interpretation can be conducted in the life of faith, accepting the authority of God's word and asking, how does that apply? What is that saying? How does it apply in my situation? And that can be done reverently. That can be done in a way that accepts God as sovereign ruler. The problem, when I'm using the word judgment, the problem I'm looking at is someone coming to a passage of Scripture saying, I know what that means, but I reserve the right to decide whether it applies to me, whether it's any of relevance anymore. That's what I'm meaning by standing in judgment on God's word. It's where some pressure group uh, says, well, there's that passage that condemns homosexuality. We'll just get rid of that. We'll stand in judgment on that passage. It's not really part of God's word. Whereas those who are coming with a right attitude are trying to see how God's word applies in the modern situation. See, this is the task God's left the church. These words were originally written in many, many manners and in many places over the centuries and applied in the first instance to a specific situation. We can look at them and we say, this is what God said in those days to that situation. How can I apply that principle to the situation I'm now in? Now, that's not standing in judgment on God's word. That's using it for rebuke, for instruction, for building up in righteousness. But that's quite different from saying, oh, well, we'll take that bit out, modern thought, well, that's not politically correct. And we really know a little bit more about Nebuchadnezzar, and he never existed. It wouldn't be Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps it's Darius never really existed. Somebody's made a mistake there. Men have, for centuries, made long lists of errors in the Bible. There was one famous list, which I've never seen, I've read about. I've always, if somebody ever gets a copy, it was made by the French Academy of Sciences in 1870. A hundred problem facts about the Bible. And somebody revisited it about 1930 and found that everyone had an answer by 1930. But if you'd asked the French Academy of Science, they would have come up with a different set of 100 ones in 1930. There are always problems in each generation facing up to Scripture. But they're never the same problems. They keep changing because questions get answered and things that people thought they knew, they find they don't really know as clearly as they thought. More light shed. But there's a tremendous difference between saying, let's cut bits out, let's stand in judgment. This is not to be accepted as God's word, even though I know what it means. And interpreting scripture, which is accepting this is God's word, and asking, how can I apply it? What is the message now? Okay. Yes. I have a question. A question. Um, for those who believe 
in infallibility of scripture, but still would say that um, it was a cultural <coughs> thing at the time. For instance, the, the women covering the head. I have, people would say, oh, well, um, that was the culture of the times. Um, but it doesn't apply now. Yes. <coughs> I thought it would take us longer to get there, but yeah, it's. <laughs> Can I take up something I just said? We see the authoritative word applying to a particular situation, and we have to ask ourselves, what was the standard? Let's take another one, and I'll come, come to you with the same. Uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, that was a common gesture of greeting in the day. And I, I think that one is doing justice to that by saying what Paul was urging was that Christian believers, when they meet, would give each other a genuine, warm welcome. Now, that's the principle. I look back and say that's what Paul said then, and I then ask myself, how do I put that into operation now? It's somewhat more difficult with the women's heads being covered uh, because there is still some uncertainty as to the significance of that back in that situation. But... It's, there, there is considerable evidence that those women who went around with their heads uncovered in Corinth in Paul's day were of uh, poor character. Uh, I think, uh, I know we're dealing with Greece, but it was still, there were conventions that were very much more like the conventions of Muslim countries nowadays regarding the way in which a respectable woman would appear in public. And uh, I think that it's fair to say that that probably played a significant role in what Paul was saying. I'm not saying it's the total answer. Uh, that's why I'm a bit more hesitant. But uh, against that background, one can certainly say that uh, Paul is urging women not to appear in public in disreputable dress. So that there's, that's what was being said then. The principle at work is, here's what's being said now. But you can see how somebody else might say, well, that's not quite what I see there. And so there can be differences of interpretation. Others might take a different slant on it. But both are saying, that's God's word, and the principle there still applies. Now, it's tremendously encouraging, actually, and very useful when you meet uh, someone from a different background, a Christian, a believer, someone committed to the word of God, and they have a different interpretation because it challenges you. Have I got it right? Is there something more in this passage than I, I haven't really seen it before? Or is it somebody else that's got to change? When there's that shared in common, a willingness to be under the authority of the word, uh, that is a tremendous Christian possession, and you can discuss meaningfully different interpretations. But when you come to somebody who says, well, 
that's not politically correct anymore, toss it out. Uh, there's no possibility of dialogue. You're in a different thought plane altogether. Yes, Frank. Can I say on this more to a primary matter rather than a secondary issue, if we dare call women's head covering a secondary issue, say fundamental doctrines of the church, like a dominical sacrament, like baptism. Now, it's a, that, I would say it was a very, very well-established first order situation, but the Christian church, especially evangelicals, have sort of drawn a truce on that one. Well, we'll walk together, brethren, but we're, we're not going to fall out over it, but it, it, it is a, a Dominical sacrament. How would you answer that? Baptism. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> the others are wrong, of course. <laughs> and I, I say that without knowing quite who I'm speaking to. Um, you've got... Little, I come at it from this angle. The Lord has let this situation arise for a purpose. I'm not sure I know why. Many of the discussions of the church of the past, where there's been opposite camps, have, at the end of the day, led to greater light, greater certainty regarding some doctrine. You think of the discussions over the doctrine of the Trinity, the person of Christ, the atonement... Uh, there have been views expressed and at the end of the day there has been a general consensus resolution in the church, in the evangelical church. There are therefore some doctrines that uh, it does not... I don't think that they are as perhaps as primary as you were suggesting in your question. And I'm saying that simply because as far as I can see the Lord has left them very largely unresolved in the church. Uh, say the, the matters like the person of Christ and the atonement, uh, these are things that evangelicals can agree on across a great many spectrum. Um, and therefore it would seem that I don't have an answer, that what I'm saying is perhaps we're being taught humility and perhaps we're being given uh, a measure of eagerness to see how they will all be worked out in what some people call the theology of glory, the, the perfect systematics theology that will be achieved hereafter. I, I, I leave that doctrine there. Yes. Go to any Christian shop and see tens of translations. Of scripture. Um, would you recommend any that are more accurate ones? And would you steer us away from some that are perhaps uh, not uh, following the correct lines? If we're going to buy a Bible, what should we buy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm beginning to get some fellow feeling for Tony Blair. <laughs> <laughs> All well, no, I better not say all. There are some obvious translations, some translations to be avoided. 
where they've come out of sects. I'm thinking, say, of Jehovah's Witnesses translations. I assume you're not really... You've put them to one side. The translations that are presented nowadays have all got different merits. They are consciously produced with different philosophies. And they all have a part to play. I think that the sensible thing to do is to ask yourself where you stand, both as regards the English language, as regards the level of Bible study you're going to engage in, and to buy... I would suggest you buy two translations, because it's always good to compare one with another, that meet the place you are. For instance... There's the Good News Bible. Now, I'm no advocate of the Good News Bible. But in terms of what it set out to do in the first place, it was very sensible. It was aimed, as far as I can recall, at West African Christians for whom English was a second language. And therefore it used a certain limited vocabulary set. That's a great aim, perfectly valid way of trying to reach a community with the word of God in a way that they can understand whether that makes it the correct translation for someone seeking to engage in close Bible study but doesn't have access to the original languages or not is a different matter. But it can also play a role for those whose level of English in our own country is not very advanced. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There are translations and I would not care to commend one over another. Their strengths and weaknesses. Um, I've got my own preferences, you know. <laughs> but they are just that. Um, I would not advise anyone to use a translation like the, the RSV or the NRSV for ordinary study because they see fit to amend the text, particularly the RSV, in ways that are, I would say, unwarranted. The New English Bible was perhaps the the worst for that. It incorporated every scholarly fad that was going amongst the group of translators. It makes it fascinating study, but it's not to be staple diet, I would suggest, for anyone. But the NIV, the New King James Version, I have a particular preference myself for the New American Standard Version, but um, not if you're trying to teach children how to spell because there isn't an English language spelling edition of it. Uh, These versions are all good. Those who have been brought up in the AV still find that the AV speaks to them, and that is fine. If the version is one that has been prepared diligently is one that fits, meets the level at which you are and perhaps just a little bit above to stretch, keep stretching upwards. And nowadays we should be glad that we have such a variety of translations. Don't, yeah, okay, one final, don't rely simply on paraphrases. Now, I, I like the New Living Translation. It's done by a group of conservative scholars, but it, it is a paraphrase. Uh, it can be very helpful to have it in the one hand and a, a much more literal-style translation in the other. 
uh, more formal equivalents, if you want to use that sort of language. But we have a variety. It's very difficult to get the thought from one language into another because language structures don't, don't have a one-to-one -one correspondence. There's always another angle, there's another aspect to be teased out. So rather than seeing it as a com competition, one over the other, I think it's a matter of uh, choice uh, that uh, weighs up what a translation is set out to do in relation to where you are as an individual. What are we selling on the bookstore, Ian? <laughs> NIVs. It strikes me the good, the good news Bible should be used in most schools insofar as teachers have managed to uh, reduce English to the second language for most of the people in this country. But maybe that's a, that's a very controversial statement. Please don't latch on to it. I think we'll have to draw this part of the evening to a close, um, sadly. I'm sure we could have gone on listening to Professor Mackay for much longer. But apart from anything else, he has a train to catch. Uh, I would like to thank him very much indeed for his clarity once again and for the way in which he's helped us think about this very important subject. He's coming back uh, in a week or two to talk to us again about the dignity of work, and we very much look forward to that. But thank you for what you have given us tonight.